Flipsters, Flipsters, and Finger Poppin' Daddies, Knock Me Your Lobes. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest today is Mr. Reggae, Roger Steffens. Roger is an actor, author, poet, photographer, Vietnam veteran, and reggae expert with the world's largest collection of Bob Marley material. And now, your sexy boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And I'm Phil Proctor. And today, we are in reggae land. We're in a museum of reggae and ska, and the ska's the limit, uh, at the beautiful home of Roger Steffens. And as Roger said, it's his third home because he collected so much memorabilia, he had to move out of his first two houses. <laughs> but he's got you have seven rooms here dedicated to your collection. Seven rooms, floor to ceiling, and there's no room left. And Raj is uh, the primary go-to man for the history and story of reggae. He's written 10 books, and seven of them have been about reggae. And how many about Bob Marley in particular? Well, the, the seven, uh, and three or four of them are specifically Bob. And we'll get into all of that stuff. But, but the real th- thing about Roger and, and me is that we've been friends for, Roger reminded me, 45 years. Yeah. 45 years. Yeah. I remember when we were friends for 33 and a third. You, may, you know, if you're born in 33, you'd be 45 and 78. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> but did we meet through... Oh, we met we met getting stoned in New York. No, not in New York. Where was it? It was out here when I first came in 75, 76. I was doing industrial films for oh, General wow. Telephone. And your first wife, Barbara, was working there right. when somehow Firesign Theater came up and I almost jumped out of my skin. I said, you're married to Phil Proctor. Yeah. Oh, my God. He, you know, the Firesign Theater kept me sane when I was in Vietnam. <laughs> How was it that you first got turned on to the Firesign Theater? I had a friend, a poet named Jerry Burns, who was living in uh, on the border of Berkeley and Oakland in, in 1967. A guy named Burns is the perfect one to introduce you to the Firesign Theater. Yeah. He had the album, and I got a copy before I left, and I brought it to Vietnam with me. And, of course, uh, everybody in Nam um, immediately went to the PX and bought... T-Act reel-to-reel tape recorders and cassette recorders and uh, a turntable if you had a barracks room big enough to hold it. And so I started making copies of the electrician for guys who would come through group headquarters in Saigon on their way out to field. And I, you know, I wore the record out making all those, those tapes, but guys all over the country from the DMZ to the Delta were listening to the Firesign Theater on my cassettes. And every time a new album came out, I'd, I'd just repeat the process. So I imagine we saved a lot of lives. <laughs> or, or destroyed more brains than the Viet Cong. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, if you want to talk about the Army experience... Were drugs prevalent as <laughs> as they say they were? Like, I mean, I mean how else would Firesign take off in the field. Like well, that. I made a study of that. Mm. Um, I had I had dropped acid 
two years before I ever smoked a joint. I, I've never been a smoker. And, you know, if you've had an H-bomb, what do you need a firecracker for? <laughs> but when I got to numb, I realized you needed something to break that 24-7 tension. Oh, yeah. There was no front line. I mean, eventually they dropped three rockets on my block in the middle of Saigon and burned 400 houses to the ground on Jeez. Ho Chi Minh's birthday. And so there was a tension all the time. And all the lifers were, were drinkers. And if you're drunk, you're drunk. Mm -hmm. But if you're stoned and somebody starts shooting at you, you can straighten out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn how to smoke. Oh, really? <laughs> and the guys, the 10% of the guys in my unit in November of 1967 who smoked would take me to their rooms and they would stop on, on the way back to the barracks and they would ask the local sick low driver for a pack of Park Lanes which I'm holding in my hand oh, now. I'll hold it a little closer to the mic so you flat, can see it. empty pack of park yeah, lanes. Yeah, complete with a Vietnamese tax stamp on Holy it. Holy moly. They are repacked British cigarettes with commie weed in them. And they oh. were 25 cents a pack or $2 a carton of 200 In other words, a penny a joint. And that's how... We lost the war, I think. <laughs> and so you went out behind the garage and learned how to smoke. Right? Yeah, in effect. So uh, to answer your question, by 1969, two years later, I'd say 70% of the troops in PSYOPs were smokers going up to the rank of captain. And I know this because in the second year I was there, I, I lived in an apartment on the main street of Saigon couple of blocks away from the PSYOPs headquarters. And it became a meeting place for uh, the war correspondents and uh, for, you know, world tourists who wanted to come and see a groovy war and uh, off-duty officers who got out of uniform and would have been court-martialed in an instant if they had been caught smoking park lanes with Sergeant Steffens. <laughs> uh, so it, it, was, it was a wonderful experience in, in many ways. Uh, I, I always say it was a million-dollar experience you wouldn't give 10 cents to do over. Yeah, right. You said PSYOPs. Yeah, PSYOPs. So this is, this is my story. I, uh, for many, many years, I did a one-man show called Poetry for People Who Hate Poetry. And it was all living American writers and E.E. E. Cummings, who was just too good to ignore. Mm -hmm. And I was actor-in-residence at a Catholic woman's college in St. Louis in April of 1967. How old were you then? I was 24. Okay. And on, I, I was doing a show uh, called The Wooing of Women, and I played 12 different Shakespearean characters opposite 12 of the drama students at Did the theater department. you play any women? Department. No, no. We had play, it was an all-women's college. <laughs> we didn't need any women. And uh, I got drafted on the opening night of that show. Oh, my God. God. I never knew anybody who, who went into the Army. I guess all my friends beat it one way or the other. But I was a Goldwater conservative at the time. Uh -huh. I had been the New Jersey State Oratory Champion in my senior year in high school in 1960. Um, the Constitution, a barrier against tyranny. What a load of crap that turned out to be. <laughs> and, you know, I worked for Bill Buckley in New York on his mayoral campaign, and I read National Review, and I, I was just brainwashed by 15 years of Catholic education. You were a Nixon sure. man that didn't vote for a Catholic president? 
JFK? I wasn't able to vote in 60, but I probably would have voted for Nixon. Yeah. Uh, against uh, John Kennedy. Against Kennedy, Who yeah. was the first Catholic president. He was. But, uh, you know, that didn't tip the scale for me. So 15 years of, of Catholic conservative education. And then I started hanging out, even in high school, with a bunch of guys who were reading Kerouac and Corso and Ferlinghetti. And I was a beatnik in my heart. Then the hippie movement came along, and I dropped my first acid in Milwaukee. Uh, in uh, 66. <laughs> so I'm artist in residence at this Catholic woman's college and I get drafted. And I go to the recruiting office in St. Louis and the recruiter says, what do you do? I said, well, I'm an actor and I'm a broadcaster, I'm a writer. He says, well, if you sign up for an extra year, we'll send you to the Defense Information School where they train the radio and TV people for the armed forces stations. I thought, I don't want to go into combat in Vietnam. And he said there were no stations in Vietnam. He didn't say yet. Yeah. So I enlisted for an extra year. And after basic training, they sent me, well, basic training, yeah. Uh, I don't even want to get into that. No, you so, see, you should so have seen his, Roger's face when he said the word basic training. Oh, my gosh. So then uh, after basic training, I thought I was going off to DINFOS, Defense Information School. And instead, they sent me to Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indianapolis to be a stenographer. What? To study shorthand. And I, but... As luck would have it, it was the same small base where Dinfos was located. Uh-huh. So a master sergeant at Dinfos took pity on me and said, you don't belong in stenography. I'll get you transferred. So I got transferred into PSYOPs with a bunch of guys who'd been professional broadcasters in real life. Wow. The guy who created Chicken Man, Dick Orkin. Dick Orkin. He worked Dick with Orkin? Dick Orkin. Really? Yeah. A really bunch of great creative guys and... Uh, we had a 13-week course. One week we were directors, next week we were writers, then we were camera ops, then we were uh, running the telecine, and then we were on camera. And it was the best training I've ever had in any school oh, I've absolutely. been to in my life. Now, when you say psyops... Psychological operations, which was the modern term for propaganda warfare. Uh -huh. Well, ironically, my orders, uh, when I was going to finish the broadcast course, were to go to Asmara... Eritrea to a mountaintop station uh, where I was going to help run the radio TV station. It was accessible one of two ways, helicopter or safari. <laughs> they were in constant warfare with the main country of Ethiopia, you know, Eritrea. Still are. And I was all set to go. And the last week of class, every single one of us had our orders canceled and we were shipped off en masse to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to the PSYOPs school. All of you? All of us, the whole class. And we were trained to carry 80 pounds of loudspeaker backpacks broadcasting pre-recorded surrender cassettes to the Viet Cong oh. into frontline combat operations. Wait a and minute. Our training began on the very first day with uh, a showing of the four-hour uncut version of Lenny Reifenstahl's Triumph of the Will, the Nuremberg Rally film. Nazi the four-hour version. Four hours. And the final class, three weeks later, they repeated the entire four-hour film and said, 
go to Vietnam and emulate this because it's the best propaganda work ever done. Ach, so lieber. I began to have doubts about <laughs> some <laughs> certain <laughs> things. And it was such a bizarre place. I remember being called to an assembly and there were about 800 people in this huge auditorium at Fort Bragg and the title was, Why Are We in Vietnam? Uh -huh. And they didn't seem to be answering the question. And finally, somebody in the crowd stood up and said, Sergeant, why are we in Vietnam? <laughs> and he looked him in the eye and he says, that's classified troop. Oh, wow. man. Oh, man. So go off and die for us, but we're not going to tell you why. Why? Oh, man. Yeah. And then I ended up in, in Saigon, uh, fully scared to death, fully prepared to go out into combat operations. What, with a loudspeaker on with your a, back? With loudspeakers on my back. That wouldn't make you much yeah. of a target. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Where the hell is the guy? <laughs> and they looked at my IQ and my typing speed. And my dad had been the manager of the Remington Rand office in New York City on Madison Avenue, and I learned to type when I was 10 years of age, and I could type 70 words a minute. So they said, the colonel's typist is going home next week. How would you like to live in the Walling Hotel across the street from the compound <laughs> in an air-conditioned room with hot and cold running water? Or you could go to the 9th Infantry Division and go out to the field. Oh, you yeah. thought about that yeah. uh, for a couple of days? It was fine for three months, and then the Tet Offensive broke out. Ah. And there were huge sewer pipes like eight feet in diameter on the street in front of us that hadn't been laid underground yet. Yeah. And there were 52 refugee families living in the sewer pipes. Oh, my goodness. And the Vietnamese government was saying, in the middle of the Tet Offensive, we have no refugee problem, we don't need any help. And the streets were filled, like, like L.A. looks now, with, with oh. homeless. Oh. So I had done a great deal of work uh, in the schools in Racine, Wisconsin, uh, spoken at every one of them two or three times, and all the kids knew me. And so I wrote a letter to the editor of the Racine Journal Times describing the conditions in front of me, and I said, if you would send me food or clothing, I guarantee you that I will personally distribute it to the refugees uh, and make sure it doesn't end up on the black market. Mm -hmm. So they published uh, an editorial in support of this along with my letter. And three weeks later, two five-ton trucks pull into the compound with these huge connexes, you know, the yeah. nine-foot-tall metal container, shipping yeah. containers. And my roommate was the mail clerk, and he was so pissed off. <laughs> and he opened one of the doors, and these little boxes, all addressed to be started pouring out and I went into the colonel's office and I said colonel sir you've got to come outside and see something I'm very busy private no no colonel please you've got to see something he comes out and he sees these two connexes with all these packages pouring out of me he said what the hell is that Stephens and I said well I think it's refugee supplies that my friends have sent me and I've got to send them all back what do you mean come into my office and I said, well, you know, I'm so busy typing your letters, Colonel. I, I, I don't have time to personally distribute this stuff. And I promised my friends, I gave them my word that I would because I don't want it on the black market. 
He promoted me to Spec 4 on the spot, gave me my own Quonset hut, told me I could go anywhere in Vietnam from the DMZ to the Delta, work on any project I thought was worthwhile, as long as I took pictures. So he could take the credit for it. <laughs> and I didn't oh. care. I wasn't a lifer. Take all the credit you want, Colonel. Sure. So uh, when my year was up, I found that I could get a five-month early out if I stayed in Vietnam up until that point, 31 months, and I could get the drop. So I was there for a total of 26 months. So the last 26 months of the 1960s, I was in Vietnam. Wow. And and did worked all all over the place. Just for people who don't know what the Tet Offensive was. Well, it was a coordinated attack on seventy seven uh, cities and regional capitals at a time when Westmoreland, the officer in charge of the war, uh, was telling people he could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Turned out to be a train rushing toward exactly. him. Exactly. Right. And. Um, uh, it was a major shock uh, to people in the States, and that's when Cronkite went over and came back and took the anti-war mm-hmm. stance, and that's that right. changed American public opinion, too. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a major defeat for the Viet Cong, but it was a major propaganda victory, and in the long run, that made all the difference. Yeah. It's a real crapshoot who is going to command you and who you have to, you know, to... to well, most of the rest of the Army hated PSYOPs because we had the high... I learned this officially. We had the highest average IQ of any unit in Vietnam. And wow. it was all the misfits. Yeah. You know, it was guys like me who should have been officers and didn't want that responsibility and thought the war was a crock of shit. Right. You had already changed your politics before you got drafted? No. After my basic training experiences and the the things that I witnessed in, in Fort Bragg, I went over there with a lot of doubts, and then within, I'd say, three weeks, I just saw the, the corruption from top to bottom. The, uh, the, the lobby of the Walling Hotel barracks had slot machines in it. They, uh, they had women in the PXs, uh, beautiful blondes in mini skirts cut up to their navel practically, selling Ferraris and Maseratis and uh, with built-in insurance. If you die, you can leave the car to your girlfriend or your, your wife. Wow. And, uh, you know, if you wanted anything, you could find a way to get it. And, uh, you know, they, the mess sergeant would trade stakes for television sets and it it was just about money fisher stereo had an office in saigon they sold three million dollars in 1967 worth of stereo equipment to the soldiers everybody was making money right and left catch 22 it was it was milo minder binder gone completely ballistic and a lot of drugs. You could buy a lot of drugs that druggies liked uh, in any drugstore in Saigon. Huh. I, I was never into any of those heavy drugs. I just liked Park Lane's once I learned how to smoke them. Mm-hmm. But we had friends who sent us acid from the States. And jeez. Oh, uh, uh, by the end of the second year, I, I had done a lot of acid. And then there was the coconut monk. And that was a whole different world. Johnny Steinbeck became a good friend of mine, This John Steinbeck IV, the the author's son. He was there in the Army. He got busted for pot. He testified in Congress when he was out of the Army as a civilian. And he came back 
Um, and uh, he spent a lot of time with Sean Flynn, with Errol Flynn's son, who was a CBS cameraman. Who was later murdered. Lost in Cam- Cambodia, yeah. And uh, so Johnny and Sean took me in January of 1969 to a place in the middle of the Mekong River called the Island of the Coconut Monk, Kan Fung. The Coconut Monk was a little tiny four-and-a-half-foot-tall guy who hadn't lain down in 20 years. He slept sitting up in the lotus position. Mm. He'd been uh, trained, uh, I think, as a chemical engineer by the French in France and came back to Vietnam, and they wanted him to become a colonial functionary, and instead he became a monk. And he lived on a, uh, in a palm tree like a... Uh, a little so was he a French? No, he was Vietnamese. He's Vietnamese, but trained by the French occupation yeah. forces when France and, was in uh, Vietnam. He he lived in a palm tree, and they called him the coconut prophet for a while, ah. and the coconut monk. And um, he amassed a lot of followers. In the early '60s, a Chinese benefactor gave him a sandbar island in the middle of the Mekong. And the North Bank was controlled by the Americans and the South Bank by the communists. And they fired rockets and mortars over the island, but never touched the island. And it was a religious Disneyland, and they were constantly adding to it. (laughs) At the end of the island, there was a circular prayer platform. And there were nine columns. The the Mekong is the river of nine dragons. It has nine tributaries. Uh Uh-huh. And each column was surrounded by a swirling yellow dragon and capped with a pink lotus blossom. And on top of one was Christ shaking hands with Buddha. On top of another was the Virgin Mary hugging Kuan Yin, the Chinese female deity. And every three hours, day and night, each of the families on the island would send one representative to the platform to pray for peace to Christ, Buddha, Muhammad, Lao Tse, Confucius, Sun Yat-sen, Victor Hugo, and Winston Churchill. I love that. <laughs> I love that. And The island, what was the name of it again? Kan Fung, but it was known as the Island of the Coconut Monk. Where was this? About 80 miles south of Saigon. And anybody who came without a weapon was welcomed, no questions asked. So there were, you know, maybe a thousand deserters from the North Vietnamese Army and Viet Cong, about a thousand deserters from the South Vietnamese Army. The Vietnamese, South Vietnamese government allowed it to exist because it was a place where they could keep them from setting themselves on fire on the streets of Saigon in front of the international press. He wanted to hold a peace conference on the island, uh, and he guaranteed that if people came to the island and met with him for a week, by the end of that week, there would be peace in Vietnam. And of course, everybody just laughed him off. What happened ultimately? He was um, arrested in 75 and put on house arrest and and died in uh, 91 under house arrest. But now you can get uh, a drink called the Coconut Monk uh, at Trader Joe's in his uh, memory. (laughs) You said that with a straight face. I was beginning to believe you. I thought we had a new sponsor. (laughs) That's why we're we're just broadcasting. Not not beyond belief. No, not beyond belief at all. Wow. So when I came back, yeah, I had I had spoken to a lot of conservative groups with my poetry show over the years, yeah, and they knew me as this guy who had worked for William Buckley and voted for Goldwater and mm-hmm. all of that. Straight shooter. So 
I, this is 1970. This is Kent State, Jackson State murders, oh, massive boy. demonstrations all over the country. And I put together a, a slideshow, 300 pictures that I had taken over my 26 months in Nam. And I just said, I'm only going to tell you what I personally experienced. And I want to explain to you why I am a different person from the man you knew before I got drafted. Good for you. And I spoke to the Davenport, Iowa Republican Women's Club, the Lutherans of Racine, Wisconsin Club, and all these straight people. Mm -hmm. I was on my way to a gig <laughs> at a Catholic woman's high yeah, school right. <laughs> in Grossy Pointy. And um, I heard the bulletin about the uh, murders at Kent State. I was doing my poetry show there, and when I finished it, I said, I've, I've got to tell you something. I heard just before I arrived here that at Kent State today, four students were murdered by the National Guard. The whole audience just leapt to their feet screaming. Turned out they, a lot of people had relatives who were students at Kent State. And I mean, they rushed for the telephones. They just abandoned the auditorium. I, I get goose pimples just yeah, thinking about yes, that day. Yes. So I had all these gigs booked for the rest of the month, but the schools were all on strike. So instead of being the convocation speaker, I became the strike committee speaker and did dozens of, of talks. And you know, the only complaints I got from people were from the left. People who said, why, why aren't you encouraging the students to burn down the administration building? The radical left. The radical left, yeah. Mm. They didn't think much of what I was doing. But I got to speak something. to an awful lot of people who would never have entertained an anti-war speaker before that. When you think back at Vietnam, how do you regard it? I, I probably saw more of Vietnam than 99%. How of could the you do that? It sounds like you had really a free, you know... I could write a, a plane ticket. ticket anywhere I wanted to go. Because of the psyops, yeah. or yeah, because of the colonel, and uh, we had well, units that, oh, in that's all right. four. The uh, colonel areas. when when all of the the aid came into the refugees. Yeah. So when I would hear about things that needed to be done, I would bring medical and dental assistance, and you know, plane loads of clothing and medicine and food. And, yeah, I also flew uh, leaflet drop missions. <laughs> oh God, they had these little O two Bs, which were push pull airplanes. Um, they had an engine uh, behind the cabin and an engine in front of the cabin. And they cut a hole in the floor, and we would drop leaflets through the hole in the floor. And I remember on one of these missions, I wrote about it in a, an essay I did called Nine Meditations on Jimmy and Nam, about Jimi Hendrix and Nam. Mm. Uh, that's been widely reproduced. And, you know, we're flying... 50 feet over a mountain yard village, scaring the shit out of people, dropping leaflets on people who are illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> and we look off in the distance, and I've got AFVN, uh, the Armed Forces radio station, on, on my earphones. And I look off, and we see this rocket, maybe seven, eight miles away, but we can see it taking off. And it describes this arc, and it lands on a barracks. And you see this two-story barracks just go up in flames and pieces of it rocketing off in every direction. And I'm listening to Hendrix going, excuse me while I kiss the sky. Ooh. You know, the, the whole war was 
was just surreal and surrealistic. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. And we're going to have some more with Roger Steffens right after this imported message. Proctor and Bergman in the audience here in Hollywood, waiting for America's newest game show to begin. Hello, I'm Bleach Lincoln, and welcome to Eat or Be Eaten! Please welcome our contestant, Luann Starchblocker. What do you do, Luann? I read books backwards on tape for blind Satanists. Well, okay, for a million dollars, what am I holding in my hand? A tiny ball or a ten-ton elephant? Yeah, I'm just going to go with my instinct here. Uh, A ball. She's right! and a millionaire's mansion to stuff it in. Now, for double or nothing, Luann, who is responsible for the pitiful plight of America's homeless? Uh, the old man with the beard who lives in the sky? No, it's you, Luann. Well, you just lost all your money and your home, so you're going to have to go live in a box. But not just any box, Luann. We're giving you a triple fly corrugated cardboard box with rest easy, rust easy staples and a garbage bag to wear over your head. Isn't she lucky? Lucky. And remember, everybody in America is eligible, and next week you could You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. To hear all the Sexy Boomer shows, go to SexyBoomerShow.com. And press the subscribe button in your podcast player to know when a new episode drops. Back to Phil and Ted and their special guest, Mr. Reggae, Roger Stephens. We're back and we're speaking with Ross Ross Roja, also known as Roger Stephens. I worked with you guys when you revived Radio Free Oz. That's right. On, on KPFK. That's right. You, that's sit, a, you sit in and It was the second time I played reggae on the radio. The first time was when I came back from my first visit to Jamaica in 1976, and uh, Dr. Demento put me on his show. Oh, I didn't Ram know that. Goat Liver. I played Ram Goat Liver about a bus that hits a ram, and everybody in the Jamaican bus gets off and roasts the ram and eats it. <laughs> <laughs> reggae Beat, your show on KCRW. Oh, God, that, that was way beyond any success I could have ever hoped for. What was the spark for you that, that turned you on to reggae? I had met a guy in 78 in a little reggae shop on the corner of La Brea and Hollywood, which ironically is where Bob Marley's star is now. Oh. And it was called Barton's Records. They were mainly down in the Crenshaw Shopping Center, but they opened up this branch in Hollywood for white people to buy reggae. <laughs> and I met a fellow who said he had met a guy there the week before named Hank Holmes who had 8,000 Jamaican records and had never left L.A. in his life. Huh. So how did he do I that? I called him the minute I got home, and he found out I'd been in Jamaica already buying reggae records in 76 when I had my pocket picked in Bob Marley's record store by one of the biggest reggae stars of the time. Oh, and uh, I figured with his collection and his vast knowledge and my radio background, we could do a great show, and we tried for a whole year to get on the air, and we finally got on KCRW. What's interesting, how young reggae is. Yeah, 68. What is reggae? Where did it come from in 1968? You know, I didn't know the answer to that question until 1973 when Rolling Stone 
A gonzo journalist from Australia named Michael Thomas wrote this ex- wonderful, wonderful history of reggae, uh, timed to the release of The Harder They Come, the Jimmy Cliff movie, and the release of Catch a Fire by the Whalers. Mm-hmm. And he said, reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba from the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness. I said, man, I've never heard of this before, but I got to find this right now. I was living in Berkeley. I ran out to a uh, used record bookstore on Shattuck Avenue and found a $2.25 used copy of Catch a Fire, which had a sleeve that opened in the middle like a Zippo lighter. yeah. And I took that home, and from the first notes of, of Concrete Jungle, I, I was stunned. You were hooked. And the next night, there was a little theater on the north side of Berkeley's campus, a little 40-seat revival theater, and they were showing The Harder They Come. And it was a full house, all 40 seats were filled, and there's a scene halfway through where there's a midnight smoking session with a big bong. And when that came on the screen, everyone in the theater lit a joint, and there was so much smoke, you couldn't see the screen. And on the way home, I bought the soundtrack to The Harder They Come, and my life changed forever. Um, I could not believe that there was a body of such great work that existed a couple of hundred miles off the coast of Florida that we never heard about. Mm. My boy Lollipop was ska. Nobody ever called it ska. The, The Israelites... Desmond Decker and the Aces. That was a novelty song. Nobody ever said, listen to this reggae song. Yeah. The style itself, is it based in roots music? You have to remember, Jamaica was always a tourist destination, so the bands in Jamaica had to play polka and rumba and tango and German oompa and all these different forms of music, so they were incredibly skilled musicians. (laughs) And in 1963, when, when Jamaica became independent, they wanted to have a music of their own. Um, and they were playing a lot of soca, which uh, Calypso in, in Jamaica, but mm. Calypso was not Jamaican, it was Trinidadian. So they wanted to have a, a conscious music creation that was Jamaica's own when they became independent. And they. And what year was this? This was 1963, uh, really, when, when Scott took hold. It was a double time, ska, 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 ska. And it became big in England because of all the Windrush generation who were brought over there to do the menial jobs. And they had huge colonies of of Jamaicans in England. Ska was fast Mm. and reggae was slow. And, and you said it was because of a, uh, the rumor is there was a terrible heat wave. Oh yeah, in 66, after four years of ska, uh, it, it was much hotter than normal, and Jamaica is a really hot country. Yeah. Reminds me of Vietnam in so many ways. Uh-huh. So they, they wanted to slow down the beat, and they changed it to uh, an alternate kind of heartbeat, because all of Jamaica's music is heartbeat. It's just the tempo that changes. So, ska, 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 became ba-bum-bum, ba-bum-bum, mm-hmm. ba-bum-bum. Mm-hmm. And most of the soundtrack of The Harder They Come is, is Rocksteady era. And then uh, the sound systems, which brought the music to the hinterlands in Jamaica with big speakers and turntables, uh, when they would play a, a record, often someone would toast over it or rap over it. Rap really was born in Jamaica, and it was mm. a Jamaican who brought it to the Bronx, Cool Herc. 
And then they started putting out singles where they only had one song on it. They had the the A side was the vocal and the B side was the instrumental, so you could play the instrumental at a sound system dance and a local rapper could rap over it. And then they started to record those raps and put them on record with people like like you, Roy, who passed away last year, is considered the father of rap. And um, in 1968, the studio musicians changed it up to chucka, 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 slowed down even further from Rocksteady. Mm. And that heartbeat music was known as the roots music. This was the music that the Rastafarians played at their groundations, at their religious gatherings. And it was ba- mainly a drum music. And then the, the electric bands would take different instruments to take the part of the akete drum or the, the bass drum and use that. You hear that especially when you hear Rastaman vibration, Rastaman chant. That's where its roots origins are. Yeah, the, the scatolites were dreadlocked and they used to do groundations up in the hills above Jamaica with people like Count Ossie and the mystic revelation of Rastafari. And they are on a song called O Carolina that is considered the first real reggae song, and that was recorded in 1958. To get to Bob Marley, Procter & Bergman were performing at Paul's Paul's Mall in uh, Boston, and our booking agent told us that we would be opening for a group called The Whalers. And since it was Boston, I thought it was an Irish group (laughs) that would be singing, well, ho, well, ho, and off we go, you know. (laughs) And and so we show show up (laughs) at the club, and we go into the dressing room, and there's all these black guys. And... And, and we figured out, you know, oh, my God, this is that reggae group we've heard about. And I think it was their first American tour. It was. And Bob was there, and they were smoking a ganja, smoking pot in a rolled-up uh, issue of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> <laughs> and they were keeping their pot in a bag from the Bank of Boston. <laughs> I don't know why. And so Bergman, being Bergman, said, hey, man, could we have a little bit? And Marley says, oh, sure, man. And he reaches into the bag, takes out a handful of ganja, and hands it to us. Okay? And and after spending, like, you know, 15, 20 minutes talking to these great guys, we said, you know, Bob, you have to go on first. The crowd out there is your crowd. So why don't you go on and satisfy them? They'll never tolerate us, and then we'll do our crazy act afterwards. He said, sure, Mom. So they went on, all wonderfully stoned, leaning up against the the big speakers, and they killed. It was just wonderful. And after it was over, a little intermission, Peter and I go out to do our highfalutin, college-oriented... Very intellectual. Intellectual fireside show. <laughs> and we look out at a sea of black faces, basically. And we said, <laughs> this is going to be different, Peter. <laughs> and there was this Roman show on uh, PBS called I, Claudius, which was a tremendous hit. So we were doing a parody of that show. And I did this crazy speech as this character, Kali Yuga. And right when I ended it, there's 
dead silence. And we hear from the audience a female voice say, what did that man say? <laughs> man, you know, that totally unforgettable. When people heard first about reggae, it was always the connotation that it was related to ganja. Sure. And marijuana and getting high. But it was very really tight. tight. Really very tight. tight. Were they very rehearsed? Oh, my God, Bob would do a single song for maybe 14 hours. I, I, I have an interview with Judy Mowat of the I-3, the trio of women that sang behind him. They were top three women vocalists in Jamaica, really. And um, she said one day they did a rehearsal of, uh, I forget what song she told me, but it was one of his most important songs, and he wanted it to be really tight and right. And they did it for 14 hours, she said, until they were in tears begging him to stop. And he oh. says, no, not till you get this right. And he made everybody in his band learn how to play every other instrument. So they were so well rehearsed, and they knew how each song fit together so keenly that on a live show, and I, I have a whole cabinet filled with live tapes over there. Um, no Woman, No Cry might, might be 424 one night, and the next night it might be 716, and another night it might be 13 minutes long. And he could do that on stage with just a flick of a finger or an eye movement, and the band was ready to go wherever he wanted to take him perfectionist. So the ganja didn't affect it? No, no. Look, all these anthems that are sung all over the world today, Redemption Song, Get Up, Stand Up, Exodus, they were all created directly under the conscious use of herb. And he, he got mad at people. He says, herb is not for jollification, he told me. He pointed to his forehead. He said, it's for education. I love that. And he didn't like people who abused it. It was sacred. It was the way to see and feel and hear God and bring God consciousness and manifest it into our consensus. Or to write good comedy records. God knows. Is that a Jamaican, this notion of heavy ganja use? Well, the Indians brought ganja to Jamaica 400 years ago. Mm. Uh -huh. East Indians. But it caught on. Why wouldn't it? <laughs> What's not to like? You have said that Bob Marley was the most important musician of the 20th century. Yeah, absolutely right. Look, I, I was interviewed, I think you watched it, Phil Kogan yeah. from The Amazing yeah. Race. He's, he wanted to interview me, he said, because he had been to 130 countries and found evidence of Bob Marley in every single country he's been to. There is Look... Bob's music can be translated into any language and be understood. How do you translate subterranean homesick blues into Urdu? Mm -hmm. <laughs> His music speaks to the essential elements of a consciously lived life. It's music that comforts the sufferers. It's music that challenges the autocrats. It's music that inspires the revolutionaries. It's music that tells you how important ganja can be in a creative life. Kids love it for that reason. If kids just get into it because of ganja, they're going to be taken to places they never dreamed of if mm -hmm. they listen right. Mm -hmm. So there, there is no figure in the 20th century musical sphere John Lennon, Bob Dylan, I don't care who you bring up, that has had the effect that Bob Marley has had. To this day, he is still the top-selling reggae artist each year. 
And he was tremendously politically engaged. Despite himself. He despised politics. He despised politicians. And I'll tell you a story. The great moment in his life, one of the greatest moments, is in 1978 when he returns from exile after the assassination attempt. The concert that he did on his return was called the One Love Peace Concert. And it was to concretize a peace truce between the two warring factions in the ghetto the JLP, the Labor Party, uh, which was the right-wing party of Edward Siaga, whom they called Ciaga, <laughs> and the uh, socialist Democrat Michael Manley, who was the prime minister at the time, the People's National Party. And at the end of the peace concert, he brought both of them reluctantly on stage and made them shake hands in front of 40,000 people a moment that his art director said was like Christ on the cross between the two thieves. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the great pleasure in 1979 when I was traveling with him through California. Uh, we had just started the reggae beat and Island Records called us up and asked us, me and Hank, if we would mind going on the road for two weeks with Bob <laughs> And uh, he had two free nights and he was staying at the Sunset Marquee. And um, on... On the Monday night, we showed him uh, footage from the uh, Smile Jamaica concert, which was done two nights after he was shot. He had never seen that before. And then the following night, a movie called Heartland Reggae was being edited in town by the Canadian guys who made it of the uh, One Love Peace concert. And... I watched Bob as he watched Bob on the screen, and there was that moment when he takes the hands of these two guys in whose names so many thousands of people have been murdered in the gang wars in Jamaica, holds those hands aloft, and he makes this benediction to Rastafari. Wow. And he was asked afterwards, what was going through your mind at that moment? And he said, well... I'm a no politician, but if I'm a politician, only one thing for me to do, kill them both. Ah, wow. Oh, that gives me chills. How was he shot? What happened? He was rehearsing for this Smile Jamaica concert. He was giving a free concert for the people in Jamaica after he had made his big international breakthrough. And um, the Jamaican, there, there were elections coming up. And the Siaga people felt that by doing this concert and the fact that the prime minister would be on stage with him, uh, that he was endorsing the re-election of Michael Manley. Uh -huh. And he got kind of suckered into that. And um, he was warned not to do the show in advance, and he had armed guards around him day and night. But the Friday before the Sunday concert, this was December 3rd, 76, the guards, about 8 o'clock at night, just kind of disappeared. Uh-oh. And two carloads of gunmen, mostly teenagers, broke through the gates, jumped out, and started shooting everyone in sight. Oof. His wife had a bullet in her head that lodged in her skull. His manager was shot five times in the groin and survived. And then the gunman turned to Bob and shot him. And he had had a dream that week that um, his mother was, be was shot and the only reason she didn't die is because she froze and stood absolutely still. So Bob froze, and the bullet, he was peeling a grapefruit, and the bullet came right across his heart and lodged in his left arm. 
and he went to the grave with that bullet in him. Oh. And uh, the gunmen all got away. And they were people he knew. They were people he had helped support financially. He tried to help people on both sides of the political aisle, and it didn't do him any good. They came to kill him. How did he first break onto the scene? How did it all start? Oh, he, he won talent shows as a kid, and he, uh, he was trained by this man, uh, Joe Higgs, who was an early star in 1958-59. He had one hit after another with his partner, Wilson. Uh, he even won a talent contest, and it was on the Ed Sullivan Show in the <laughs> early 60s. And Joe was a mentor to a lot of young musicians, people like the Wailing Souls and others. And um, he, as a personal favor to a mutual friend, a man named Errol, uh, was a tutor to Bob from the time Bob was about 14, 15 years of age. And in 1963, Bob felt he was ready to record. Joe didn't think so, but he went on his own uh, to audition for a man named Leslie Kong, who had um, a lot of early hits. And um, he did a song called Judge Not Before You Judge Yourself and another one called One Cup of Coffee, both of them country and western covers, although <laughs> he's been credited with writing Judge Not. It was revealed recently that he didn't. Mm. Um, and they they failed, and he went back to Trenchtown and continued rehearsing with Joe Higgs, who taught him mic technique and stagecraft and composition and harmony, and uh, was as firm a disciplinarian as Bob himself later became. And um, the following year, they went for an audition at Cox and Dodd Studio One. And Dodd uh, was just a constant hit maker. And uh, they auditioned for him. And uh, d depending on who you believe in my book, they came back the next morning. They came back two weeks later. They came back a couple of months later. <laughs> but eventually they came back and they recorded a song called Simmer Down, and urging the people in the ghetto to cool it. Um, that became an instant number one. It sold an astonishing 80,000 copies in a country of only two million people. And that was the start of a constant stream of hits for the next two years. And they usually made three pounds a week, no matter how many tens of thousands of records they were making. And finally, in 66, Bob was disgusted. And, and this was, they were being ripped off. They were making tons of money for Coxon and not seeing any of it. So he went to America, where his mother had married a man in, in uh, Delaware named Booker. He spent February to October of 66 in America. That was a big civil rights summer, and he was reading a lot of black uh, power literature at that time, and working in the DuPont Hotel in Wilmington sweeping floors. Wow. And he went back in 69 and spent the summer, the Woodstock summer of 69, at his mother's house and worked on the uh, floor of the Chrysler plant driving a forklift and that's night shift the song he wrote about it called night shift uh -huh. and um, he had two young friends ibis pitts and dion wilson uh, ibis had a an african arts and craft store across the street from bob's mother's house and they became friends and one day ibis and dion and i've talked to both of them um we're saying, oh, Bob, you know, you're going to be a big star. You're going to have lots of money. You're going to have lots of kids. You're going to be world famous and a uh, nice long life. And Bob said, no, no, no. He says, when I'm 36, I'm going to die. 
That's an odd thing for a kid to be thinking about. It certainly is. And that's the age he died. Hmm. And, I, and they, they were so struck by this, they went to Bob's mother and told her at the time that he had said this to them. So she's confirmed it, and the two of them have confirmed it. So I believe that's true. And you said that when he was a kid, he could read palms. All the time. I mean, he freaked people out like mad. You know, the, the local constable would come by, and he'd read his hand and tell him about his childhood. And a woman named Aunt Zen, uh, she came to Bob's mother when he was three and a half and said, this kid knows things about me that nobody else in the world knows. How can he do this? You keep your eye on him because there's something going on here. And then in my book, right at the beginning, there's a, a novelist from Jamaica named Jeffrey Philp. And he met Bob at the University of the West Indies in 75. And uh, Bob started to tell him his life story. He'd never met him before. Hmm. Probably never even heard of him. Hmm. He was so blown away he could hardly speak. How could this guy know this stuff? I saw Yellow Man back in the early 80s, 84. Yeah. He was the biggest star in the aftermath of Bob, and he was the total opposite of Bob in every way you can think of. He was a misogynist. He was a homophobe. His lyrics were totally off color. You know, it was everything Bob wasn't. And he, in the immediate aftermath of Bob Marley, the guy made something like 52 records in a year. Wow. And Siaga took power after Bob died, and uh, cocaine came into Jamaica. There was a whole change, and the, the music changed, and, and reggae, the dance hall took over, and reggae died. Really? So it was a very short-lived genre. Yeah, I mean, there's still people making reggae, but it doesn't have the effect that dance hall has. It's the same way that the, the rap has taken over the American charts. Hmm. And just how big did Marley's music uh, become worldwide? Once Bob became a star in England and Europe in 75, the people in Jamaica recognized him. <laughs> took that, huh? Yeah, it took, <laughs> you know, well, him big a foreign man, so him okay. Ah. It continued until his death. Oh, bigger and bigger. I mean, the last major show he did in Italy was for 110,000 people in the San Siro soccer stadium. 110,000 people. He was the total package. He had everything. He had the looks. He was a great melodist. Uh, it was impossible to take your eyes off him. He was half white, half black. He was the synthesis. And his message. His message was for the black man primarily, but it was for anybody fighting for freedom. It had the conscious lyrics. It had the great music. His life was cut so short. What happened? Bob had cancer that was discovered in 77. He thought when he had a little piece of the toe on his right foot removed that that had stopped mm -hmm. it. But when it was discovered, it was already third stage. Oh, dear. And they wanted him to amputate his, his foot. This is melanoma. It was melanoma, yeah. And it eventually went through his blood into his lungs and his brain. And he had, you know, those last three years of his performing life... He knew he was ill, he, and, and he, he knew he was going to die at 36. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Self-fulfilling prophecy. That's why he, his mother told me he slept two or three hours a night. Because he just wanted to make every moment, right? Every moment counted. When he was home in Jamaica, when he wasn't in the recording studio, people were lined up from his front door all the way out into the street begging money. His business manager, Colin Leslie, one of my dearest friends, told me that he probably supported 6,000 people a month. 6,000 people a month got money from Bob Marley. And the minute he died, his wife cut off everyone. 
Wow. Mm. He lived for other people. If I can't work for the good of other people, I don't want to be here, he said. How did you did you see your life going in this direction where you become the, uh, the master of the, reggae, uh, the master the caretaker, of, caretaker of this incredible legacy and everything imaginable is in this space with the with the exception of a thick haze of ganja smoke. Oh, that's clinging to the walls and the fabric. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just just air snort, for a snort the carpet. That's it. Yeah, you want to hit want to hit a rug? <laughs> how did I end up yeah, doing how this? Did, yeah. God only knows. It's one thing led to another. I loved music. Um, you love poetry. You love words. You love rhythm. Yeah. I'm a Gemini, so I'm a messenger of the gods. And when I find something I love, I want to turn everybody I love onto it. That's happened right from the start in 73 when I heard Catch a Fire. I wanted everybody I knew to listen to this music. The promise of you getting your own museum space, and I know you've been working on that for a long time, and what exactly is happening with that now? How close are you to getting it? Well, it's fascinating you ask that now because... um, I have been trying for 30 years to get this collection to Jamaica. They have no museum of reggae there. It's ridiculous. They've ignored it for so long. It's anti-establishment music. That's why. Yes. And they know it. And it really belongs in a museum in Jamaica. And I have turned down millions of dollars in the past from people who would not keep it intact the Marley family has tried to buy it a couple of times, but they're only interested in the Bob stuff. And it has to be kept intact, and it has to be made available to the public while respecting all the artist rights. There is a man in Jamaica who is interested in it. He's coming here tomorrow. Tomorrow! Hmm. His idea, if we can work it out, is to build a museum in Montego Bay that will have room for all the different facets of this collection. I see it as a museum of Jamaican culture. Mm -hmm. There are 1,500 t-shirts. There's 2,000 posters. There's probably 3,000 handmade buttons, you know. Ukrainian nesting Marley dolls. (laughs) There's 14,000 hours of cassettes. There's 2,000 hours of videotapes. There's statues. There's banners. There's artifacts of posters. There's rugs. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Autographed set lists, uh, reggae business cards. Wow. uh, uh, hundreds of different reggae rolling papers. There's theses, there's manuscripts, uh, paintings, uh, you know, and, and more and more. Yeah, and more and more and more. Yeah, and it belongs in a museum, so say a little prayer that things go well tomorrow. Absolutely. We don't want you to have to move again. No. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this was so much fun. What a Thank wonderful, you, lovely, heartfelt catch-up. Thank you for the education. My pleasure, Ted. One love. One love, everyone. What a fascinating conversation. Well, I've known Roger for 45 years, and I'm still learning things about his life and his spirit that I'm so happy to know. 
Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to uh, subscribe to our show, look for the little button that says subscribe. And uh, you can go to our website at sexyboomershow.com. Hear all of our shows with really a great group of fascinating people. And if you'd like what you hear, you might want to donate. And if you donate $20, what do they get, Phil? They're going to get uh, gypped because all we're going to send them is a lousy bumper sticker. Yeah, but the adhesive is great. It oh, doesn't but fall it off. comes with a car. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Until next time, Phil. <laughs> yes, till the next time. Stay sexy. Bye. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Roger Steffens. Eat or Be Eaten was performed by Proctor and Bergman and Melinda Peterson. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a earnest guy. Stay tuned for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for seasoned hipsters, man.